This morning we bring our teaching series through the book of 2 Samuel to a close, and in order to do it, we need to take the final two chapters and push them together. And I think actually that really these two chapters and the one before it, chapter 22 that we talked about last week, are in some ways in an a appendix or an addendum to the, the whole book of Samuel, as it were, a, a compilation at the end by the storyteller to give us a, a quick overview of the life of David. And so last week we talked about David running from Saul and, and experiencing God's protection and God as a rock and God as a refuge and all of these things. And David responding to those realities and seeing his personal care for him and God's faithfulness that breeds David's faithfulness that ultimately leads to a God who gives great victories for his king. And we saw how that really foreshadows the ultimate victory of the ultimate king uh, named Jesus. And so today, as we look in these last two chapters, we'll read bits and pieces of it. Obviously, we won't have time to read large portions of it. But there really, there's three parts to these last two chapters. The first part is the first half of chapter 23, and it really talks about David's kind of last public statement, uh, David's sort of farewell address, or the way he wants his kingdom to be remembered. And so uh, we'll see that in David's words. And then the, the second half and the second point uh, of chapter 23 is really a remembrance or listing of what is often called in Samuel David's mighty men, or those who were faithful uh, to David and, and served with him and alongside of him and empowered him in many ways. So David's view of his kingship, David's mighty men, and then uh, you would think that would be the wrap-up, right? That would make sense. David's last words, all the men who followed David, what a way to go out. But instead of letting David have the last word, the storyteller is going to add another story on there to just remind us that David wasn't all that David was cooked up to be. And so 2 Samuel ends, which should be not surprising to us having journeyed through this book, it ends a little different than it starts. And so chapter 23 starts great, and chapter 24 ends poorly, and we again see David's pride and his sinfulness that makes us want to look forward to an ultimate king. So David's view of his kingship, David's mighty men, and David's sinfulness, and that will all lead us to consider Christ in our lives and our response to him. So, 2 Samuel chapter 23, this is what David says. David's last words. He says, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse. (laughs) The utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by God, the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. This is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. David says, my kingship, because the Spirit of God is on me. It's like sun. It's like the, the morning sun that comes after a long night of darkness. In other words, Saul, long night of darkness. David, the sun that's going to bring what he says, righteousness and justice. And we say to ourselves two things. Yeah, it's exactly what it was supposed to be, but we've already read the story, David. It didn't turn out like that, right? So we're already cued in 
to what the storyteller wants us to know. David is not a man who in his fullness brought righteousness and justice and things like this. He says, If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. Now you see here that David is already changing the narrative a little bit. You pick up on it carefully. He changes it from the personal me to the plural my house. In other words, if my house was not right with God, then God would not have made a covenant with singular me. In other words, David, in reflecting on his life, is already saying, if this is about me and my perfection and my righteousness, we're in trouble, and there's no way God should have made this covenant. But somehow, in this ultimate line, this house of David is going to live up to this reality of what the king and the kingship was supposed to be. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation if this weren't true, and grant me my every desire, listen to verse 6, but evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand, wherever or whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear. They are burned up where they lie. So again, this idea that his kingdom would bring justice and righteousness and deal with evil in the kingdom of Israel and therefore in the world. And what we actually saw is what started out incredibly promising ended up with a king who himself was corrupted by evil. He was part of the problem, not the solution to the problem that the kingship of David was promised to be. And so David is right to turn the perspective then off of himself and onto his house. First point. Second point, he talks about his mighty men. And what's fascinating about these mighty men, we'll read this section because there's things in here that will blow your mind. And you'll be like, why aren't there real stories about this? And the point is because the whole story has been about David and it's centered in on David and his leadership. But what we find out here is that there are other men who are just as heroic as David, who have done just as incredible things as David on the battlefield, who have stood with David through thick and thin. They have truly been loyal These are men who identified David as the rightful king long before all of Israel identified David as the rightful king. They went with him when he was on the run away from Saul. They defended him when Saul was pursuing him. They saw that he was king and they laid their lives down in his service long before the world identified him as king and was willing to embrace him as king. And so now, finally, at the end of this whole drama, they're getting a little bit of airtime, right? Finally, we're hearing about some of these things, and we're saying to, my, to ourselves, oh my goodness. But there's something interesting in there. I think if you want to just take this on a moral level, we would say that loyalty is an admirable quality. But also, I think that there's a sense in which God knows by name those who have served in his behalf, Right? Those who have identified his king and are following them. Listen to some of these stories. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bathshebetheth, and he's from somewhere with a capital T, was chief of the three. He he raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Here's a dude with a spear and 800 enemies, and he killed them in one encounter. We've never heard about this before. That's it. We're just going to mention that. That's all we hear about him, right? This is crazy. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite, 
uh, the one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. So all of Israel retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and he struck down the Philistines until his hand grew tired and froze to his sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. In other words, Eleazar killed all of them. And when Israel finally came back, they just came to take their belongings. This is all we hear about Eleazar, right? Next to him was Shammah, son of Aji, the Herite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them again. But Shammah took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it, and he struck the Philistines down. And the Lord brought about a great victory. So Shammah's the guy who is pretty passionate about lentils, right? Verse 13, during harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, where the band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, right? There's the giants again. At this time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, I've tried this at home, right? I've I've been on the couch after a long day of watching the Phillies or the Flyers or whatever, and my boys are over there doing something else, and I I tried this. Oh, that someone would get the king some water. I, I don't usually ask for water. It's probably a Diet Coke, but you get the point. No one gets that for me. I don't know why. But three mighty warriors hear what David says. They break through the Philistine lines. They draw water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, David's home water, and carry it back to David. Can you imagine this? This valor. And then can you imagine this? But he refused to drink it. (laughs) Instead, he poured it out before the Lord and gave it back to God as an offering. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. It is not the blood of men who went at the risk of... Is this not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. We don't hear about them again. Abishai, the brother of Joab, we've heard of him a little bit. The son of Zeruiah was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the first three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included amongst them. And then listen to this guy. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest, mightiest warriors. He also went down in a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. That's all we know about that story, right? Now, why on earth would you go down into a pit regardless if it's a snowy day, to fight a lion. It's not even a warrior from someone else, but this guy is incredible, right? This is what we hear about him. He's in a pit on a snowy day. Uh, He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three, and David put him in charge of the bodyguard. And then he goes on to list all of these other names of David's mighty men, these men doing incredible things, not for their own glory, but for the advance of David's kingship and his kingdom. And here we get just a little bit of airtime, but I think it is important to note that the storyteller names them by name. 
and receives them. And then look who the storyteller puts at the very end of the list. Verse 29. And then there was Uriah the Hittite. Is this coincidence? Of course not. Because the storyteller is about to twist the narrative, right? David's the king who's going to do great things. And look at all these men who did great things. And even one of those men was Uriah. Well, uh-oh, Uriah? The one that David had a, a cheated with his wife and had him killed in battle? Yeah. And now the story is going to twist and talk about the problem of the pride of David. We won't take time to read chapter 24, but I encourage you to read it. In chapter 24, David takes a census, and it angers God that he takes a census. At first glance, at first thought, we're thinking to ourselves, why, why does God care if David takes a census? Shouldn't he know where his people live and what they are and what they do? And so we have to really deal with what the issue is going on here. And though we're not told exactly what's at heart. We are given some clues. And the first clue is, there's a guy named Joab. Remember Joab? We've talked about him a lot. He's not a good guy, right? He's a very Machiavellian guy. The ends justify the means. He'll do what he needs to do to get his desired outcome. It says in chapter 24 that Joab even came to David and said, this census thing, this is a really bad idea. So when Joab counsels you against something, you should probably listen to him, right? Because he's willing to do nearly anything to get his ends. And so we understand that people could see that something was wrong here and that it comes on the heels of this great listing of all of these armies of David and all of their great accomplishments. And David makes reference to it again in chapter 24. Many commentators, and I happen to agree with them, would conclude that what's at issue here is not the recording of numbers or names, but the pride that David takes in what he has accomplished As king. And in that pride is as significant a sin as the murder of Uriah, because they are derived from the same reality of personal rebellion and and personal autonomy and authority. Do you see that? Do you see it? And so we think God's gonna God's gonna bring a three-day plague because he took a census. But no, he's He's dealing with the prideful, autonomous, rebellious streak, the sin, capital S, that is at work deep in the heart of David, that leads David to pursue his own glory, not God's glory. We have a man who started by counting stones from a stream, trusting God that he could kill a giant, and now is counting all of his mighty men that no one else can slay. A man that has moved from seeing God as his sustainer and empower to a man who now believes that he stands on the high and holy hill. Do you see this? And it is so easy to move that way. Here's the truth. It is not wrong to record numbers. It is always wrong to find your identity in them. It is not wrong to record numbers It is always wrong and always usually deadly wrong to find your identity in them. Half of you are like me and you're saying, well, I'm safe then because I 
<laughs> I don't count anything, right? Numbers, details, whatever, who knows? But you know that this is not just about actual abacuses and sliding stats over. We're talking about power and self-worth and accomplishment and significance and acceptance and security. You may not count your mighty men, but you do count your Instagram followers. You may not count your mighty men, but you do count your bank account. You may not count your mighty men, but you do know just how pristine your home is. You may not count your mighty men, but you do count your significance in your workplace. The praise you get from your boss or your clients. Unless you think that people in quote-unquote spiritual professions are immune from this. Pastors and missionaries and those types are perhaps the worst at this. Because we find our significance in how many people show up on a Sunday morning. Or how many people talk to us about how impactful our sermon was. Or many other things. It's a different feeling in the flesh to be just starting out planting a church to move to be the pastor of an accredited and growing church, to move to be the pastor, the lead pastor of a multi-congregational church are very different realities. And in my flesh, I'm no different than David. Do you see it? That when I started out, I'm fully dependent upon God. God, if you don't do something here, I've got no hope. I know no one. I have nothing. And now, well, God, look what I've been able to accomplish, right? And I don't sit home and say that, but these things, they reek inside of us. You understand? And we count things all the time. And we find our identity in them. And it kills us. It may not end your physical life. But the fullness of your life is shut off because as soon as the numbers don't go your way, all the joy and happiness and peace that you've placed in them is shut off like a water valve. You see it? And the truth is that there's two sides to this, right? There's the reality of counting your mighty men in what I'll call the positive side. By positive, I don't mean good. I mean saying, wow, look at me. Look at all my mighty men. And then there's the negative side that says, well, woe is me. I have no mighty men, right? And and here, let me let you in a little secret. And there's a guy who's written a a fantastic book about this. His name's Edward Welch, when people are big and God is small. The truth is that there is no difference in the level of pride between the person who says, look at me, And the person who says, woe is me. Why? Because they're measuring themselves by the very same thing. Their identity in what they're counting rather than in God. We've grown up in a culture that says, oh, that person has low self-esteem. Not true. Very high self-esteem. Why? Because they're seeing that the world is not agreeing with their own opinion of themselves. And so what I want you to know is that we are all deeply plagued by this. I'm not trying to single out the woe is me or the the high is me because we both live in those plains. This is deep in us. We're just as infected as David. And so punishment comes to David. And God 
gives him some choices. Weird story. David chooses the plague from God because he wants to fall on the mercy of God. He knows now that he's got to find identity in God. And a plague comes. There's this, this incredible overtones to the Exodus story. A plague is coming. An angel of the Lord is coming to deliver this plague. And, and, and David finally, as the angel is relenting, builds an altar to God. He does an animal sacrifice. The blood of the animal is going to cover the sins of Israel. And as David is doing this, he has this revelation that this has got to cost me something personally. He says to God, stop taking this out on the sheep. The shepherd did wrong. May your punishment come on my family, and house only. David is rightly saying, I deserve this and taking it. And so he goes and he's told to build an altar at this place and this man's threshing floor. And he goes there and the man is skeptical of what's going on, right? And when he finds out that David has intents to to build an altar there, the man says, well, just take whatever you need. I'll give you the animals. I'll give you all my place. You do whatever you need to do here. And David says, no. I have to pay for this. And so he buys it. And he pays the man for the threshing floor. And he pays the man for the sacrifice. And he lays the sacrifice out there. And the, the, the wrath of God relents and is pulled back. And the sins of David and Israel are covered by the sacrifice. You know what's fascinating? That threshing floor becomes the temple. And Solomon builds the temple... He builds it right there. And that altar that David made becomes the altar in the temple and signifies the place where the priest, time after time, would lay the sacrifice on behalf of the people for their cleansing and their covering. And so now, once again, at the end of this great story, this great saga, I should say, of the reign and rule of David, we are left to look forward. A man whose kingship started with such great promise, like a sun rising in the morning. Evil is going to be stomped out and dealt with once and for all. And who had men who stood with him faithfully from the beginning, we find out is actually just as corrupt. He's a thorn, not the sun. And so we go back to his own very words. It must be that God has seen in my house a reason to make this covenant. And so it should not surprise us in the opening stories of the four Gospels when Jesus arrives to earth that he is born in the city of David. From the line of David, in humble means, just like David. Jesus is the ultimate king. He is the sun that shines in the morning after a long, dark night of evil. 
It's Jesus is the sun that rises after storylines like mass shootings in Virginia Beach or death and destruction around us or evil or tyrants or disease. Jesus is the sun that rises, the hope for righteousness, for mourning in the new day, a promise of justice for the world that evil will once and for all be dealt with. But how? How? How can he do this? Well, we know that Jesus deals with evil in a very direct way. He turns to the Father and he says, do not take it out on the sheep. Instead, direct your punishment on the shepherd. And whereas David David rightly took the punishment that he deserved, Jesus rightly took the punishment that he did not deserve. As he willingly paid a significant price, the sins of the world were covered. And in so doing, the New Testament writers tell us that Jesus' body His presence, His Spirit, is now the new temple. And in so doing, opens up the presence of God to the ends of the earth. That everyone can be included in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' incarnation, and through his death and ultimately his resurrection, he has brought his kingdom. When Jesus comes, it's on purpose that they say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But it is at hand in what we call an already but not fully yet way. If you think of heaven as a giant circle. This is not true. This is just illustration. A giant circle and earth as a giant circle. What you have is the hope that one day heaven and earth would be totally enmeshed together. That's what the Bible calls the Garden of Eden or the future restored earth. At the Garden of Eden, after the sin, heaven and earth were separated. When Jesus comes, there now begins to be an overlap between heaven and earth. And he tells his disciples to pray that it would be done on earth just like it is on heaven. That the church would be the continual overlap of these things. But that ultimately one day when Jesus comes back to finally deal with the thorns of evil once and for all, heaven and earth would be one again. But now we live in this already and not yet reality. Where most, in fact much, of our world does not recognize Jesus as the true King. So what about us then? Well this morning, as we finish 2 Samuel, perhaps the greatest takeaway is that Jesus, and God the Father, has called you His mighty men and women. He has said, you recognize that I am king now, even long before the world will fully embrace me. And he reminds us that he knows that we are fighting 
incredible battles that oftentimes will never get airtime. But he's aware. So what does it mean to live as a mighty woman or a mighty man of King Jesus now? Let me suggest a couple of things to you. First, it means being willing to set aside the pursuit of your own kingdom to pursue the advance of Jesus' kingdom. What's universal about all the stories of the mighty men of David is that none of them talk about the great ranch they were building back home, right? It's all these crazy stories of frontline warfare. And so what does it mean for us? No one's telling you to sell all your belongings and go you live like a desert father back in the early days, right? But what does it mean for you in your time and in your talents and in your treasures, your resources, to be more about the advance of the kingdom of Jesus than your personal kingdom here on planet earth right now? Jesus says, your prayer should be not that my kingdom advances on earth, but that the kingdom of heaven comes more on earth. What would it mean for you to be a mighty man or woman of God? And the truth is that sometimes it means taking some crazy risks, doesn't it? Right? But what on earth drives Beniah to go down into a pit on a snowy day to fight a lion? Right? To any onlooker, and I don't, I, I, to any onlooker, we look at him and think something's not right, right? This is a crazy choice. Like the, the 800 men, we kind of get that. We wouldn't do that, but we kind of get that. The lion in the snowy pit, it makes no sense to us, right? But it has to be that he so believed that David was who he claimed to be that he was willing to do things that to the onlooking world seemed a little off. Now listen, to an onlooking world, a life of allegiance to King Jesus looks a little off. I'm not asking you this morning to consider huge things like moving to the Middle East to announce the kingdom of God there, but it's possible that God might call you to do that. I'm talking about what seems to us to be small acts of obedience. But the reason they're so difficult is because the world says, why would you live like that? To be a truly honest person. The world says, that's crazy. What's in that for you? To be a person who truly is marked by their faith in Christ. To be a person who actually loves their neighbor. To be a person who's willing to share about their faith in a respectful and responsible way. To all of those things, we're thinking, eh, because the world has told us time and time again, that's weird, that doesn't make sense. But the mighty men and women of Jesus go into the pit on a snowy day to fight a lion, right? And so will we be defined by what they say about us or by the king who compels us to live a different kind of life. You see this. And then sometimes it might mean engaging in the battle. 
I suspect you will not be encountered by Philistines this week. If it happens, we'll get you added into 2 Samuel. I promise. I'll find a way. I'll talk to the Holy Spirit. We'll New Hope Alliance version of the Bible. We'll add you right in there. <laughs> but you will encounter at least two of three, perhaps three of three, more significant enemies than the Philistines. The first is Satan and his minions who are attempting to influence us in so many unknown ways. I love the screw tape letters because in them C.S. Lewis tries to paint a picture for us that, that the, 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 the temptation and, and the diversion that Satan and his minions do to us seems so, that is so subtle because we're often looking for it to be these flashing light spiritual battles but he'll distract us so that we aren't on mission for what we're doing. Being a mighty man or woman of King Jesus means engaging in that battle. The second enemy is the world, and I do not mean by the world people. I mean by the world the systems of this world that under the rule of Satan have have joined together to create opposition for the advance of the kingdom. There are no names or faces that come when I say world. I'm talking about the systems and things of the world. You'll meet it. And then the most sinister and the most deadly and the most untalked about of all of the enemies. You. Your flesh. Which Paul says is at war with you. And it is not needing to be in other places. It is always with you. You will not, I imagine, fight a lion in a snowy pit. But you will fight yourself in something that, that seems to be far worse than a snowy pit. This is what it means to be engaged in the battle of the flesh. Why even do it? Why not just give in to the things that your body says are good and you won? Because you have come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so even though the world says, why not? Just do what you want to do. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? Gospel according to Cheryl Crow. And and so, (laughs) true, right? So, but because we've come to believe that Jesus actually is the rising sun after a dark night. That he actually is dealing with the thorns of evil. That he actually has taken on the sins of the world that weren't his responsibility. That he has become a temple. That he has joined himself to us so that where we go, he goes and the presence of God is with us. And so let me leave you with this. As you seek to be a mighty man or woman of King Jesus. As you try to figure out what it means to not pursue your own kingdom, but to go all in for the kingdom of Jesus. As you understand that it's going to mean taking risks, even as small as they may seem, that don't always turn out good. Then it means battling with the enemy. Here's what 2 Samuel 23 reminds us. God is aware. And by aware, I mean three things. The first is that he's present. 
Do you think that Benaiah really killed that lion in the snowy day in the pit? Yeah, he did. But because God was there. We go all the way back to the beginning of the David narrative. Did David really kill that giant? Yeah. But God was there. There's a secret behind all of these stories of valor. And so when you are poised with a choice of honesty or dishonesty, of your kingdom or God's kingdom, of sharing your faith or keeping quiet, of living by faith or living by consumption, of battling the enemy or caving in to the enemy, know that because the temple of God is everywhere, the Spirit of God is empowering you. It is just as possible for you to be victorious as David against Goliath big long-named dude against 800 Philistines, or Benaiah with a lion and a pit on a snowy day. God's with you. Second, God sees you. He recognizes your act of faith, even when you don't see it through to fruition. And God is the ultimate storyteller, and he is recording your acts of valor in his grand narrative that he is writing about this world. You may never get airtime in this life about the sacrifices you've made or your battle against lions, proverbial. But God is a faithful historian who is recording it And upon your entry fully into his kingdom, what are we told he will say to you? Well done, good and faithful servant. I saw you on February 12th battle a lion in a pit on a snowy day. I was there. Maybe your church never knew about it, but I saw. He's not only with us and not only sees us, but this gives me the greatest hope. He names us by name. To me, the coolest thing about 2 Samuel 23 is that it's not lumped into a group. Hey, amongst David's army, someone did this, someone did this, someone did this, someone did this. What a great bunch of men. No, it's that Benaiah was in a pit with a lion on a snowy day. And the really long-named guy was with the 800 Philistines. And the other guy was with the 500. And and Adam was in that battle for holiness in his life on that day. And this person was restraining from acting in anger or vengeance against someone in their family. And this person was working towards restoration and forgiveness of someone who had wronged them. And this person was attempting to live in honesty. And this person, though they did not know how to do it, was trying to have spiritual conversations with their neighbor. And God is present, and God sees it, and he records it, and he calls you by name for your faithfulness. This is the great takeaway of 2 Samuel, that David had great hope to be something and said he turned out to be a thorn. 
And so we can look forward and have noticed Jesus to be the ultimate king. So what difference does it make in the now? Should we just live here and hope that one day we can go away and be with Jesus? No, we must declare him as king now, even though the world does not yet. You are the mighty men and women of King Jesus. And I am privileged to battle alongside of you. Can I pray with you?